Luke 10, 25-37 And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Kyler. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, I don't always... Um, get to preach and teach in this way. And so, uh, again, I think I say this every time, super excited and grateful to, to uh, get to share in God's Word with you this morning. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully I'll fill in some of the uh, gaps as we go. Um, but I just want to begin, um, I'm actually going to begin with a performance in a, in a way. Um, in 1949, the poet T.S. Eliot wrote a play called The Cocktail Party. Um, anybody happen to have ever read it or seen it performed? Doubtful. I, I figured as much. Um, it actually probably hasn't been in production in about 50 years or so. Um, but in that play, I'm not going to spoil any of it for you. You should, you should read it. You should um, go see it if you ever see it being performed anywhere. It's full of Christian allegory and um, plenty of Christian themes. But about halfway through that play, in Act 2, one of the main characters, a man by the name of Edward, goes to see a psychiatrist. The reason he goes to see a psychiatrist is because he is having some problems. He and his wife have actually been separated for some time, and they're just trying to work out what is going on. And so this leads Edward to go to a psychiatrist. But Edward is the kind of person, and tell me if you can relate to this. Maybe you've met people like this. Maybe you're like this yourself. Edward's the kind of person that goes to see a psychiatrist but already kind of thinks he has it all figured out. Like, he goes seeking advice, but he's already working on the assumption that he actually knows best. He actually probably knows just how the psychiatrist can help him. And so he goes into this meeting with this mentality. I'm going to tell the psychiatrist how he can help me, which, if you think about it, is kind of silly. I mean, you are faced with a problem in front of you that you can't fix on your own and yet you feel like you have the capacity or the resource in order to help someone else help you figure out the problem that you can't figure out. 
Surely none of you have ever been in a similar situation. You've never done this before. So Edward goes into this conversation with this mentality, and I'm going to, I'm not really going to perform it, but I'm going to kind of read it for you, and this is the exchange that they have when he gets into the office. Edward comes in and he says, you know, I doubt if you've ever had a case like mine. I have ceased to believe in my own personality. I mean, just right off the bat, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, who talks like this? Like, I have ceased to believe in my own personality. But the psychiatrist, he answers, oh, dear, yes, this is serious. A very common malady. Very prevalent, indeed. Already, the psychiatrist is like, I'm not going to play this game with you. You come in, you're the rare case. You're the one exception. You're the unique case. I've never seen anything like you before. Yes, it is quite serious, but it's also quite common and quite prevalent. But Edward kind of, he comes back. But I remember in my childhood, and then there's just an ellipsis. It's like dot, dot, dot. Like he was about to launch off into some kind of, you know, uh, just tirade about my childhood and everything. And actually, if you think about it, in 1949, it was actually kind of an emerging field within psychology and psychiatry that was still very popular today that, well, if we can just figure out all the problems from my childhood, and I can make sense of that, all the ways I was messed up as a kid, well, then that'll, like, explain my current and present behavior, right? So this isn't to, like, uh, to stake any claim on the efficacy of that type of psychology. But the psychiatrist comes back and cuts off Edward for this reason. He says, wait, wait, wait. I always begin from the immediate situation and then go back as far as I find necessary. You see, your memories of childhood in your current state of mind, that is, would be largely fictitious anyways. And as for your dreams, you would produce, for me, amazing dreams, but only to impress me. And in fact, through hypnotism, I could probably make you dream the very things that I would like for you to dream, and that would only go to flatter your vanity with the temporary stimulus of feeling interesting. So... The psychiatrist responds to Edward by saying, let's not play that game. Let's not go back to your childhood. That's precisely what you want to do because that's the way that you're going to ensure that you feel interesting. But Edward comes back. But I am obsessed by the thought of my insignificance. Again, just keep in mind it's a play. Everything's totally overdramatic. But Edward says, I am obsessed with the thought of my own insignificance. And this is interesting. The psychiatrist responds, Precisely. Actually, that is exactly what is wrong with you. And if I was to let you play this game and to do this dance, I could make you feel important. And you would imagine it a marvelous cure. And then you would go on doing such amount of mischief as lay within your power, that is, until you come to grief. And then he says this, half of the harm that is done in this world. Yeah, we have, should have a slide for it. Half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. So the psychiatrist responds by saying, Actually, your obsession with your own insignificance, that is precisely your problem. But this game that you want to play, using your language, using this conversation to dance around the edges of the actual problem without actually addressing what's really going on with you, all it will do is reinforce 
your need to feel important, your need to think well of yourself. So why did I just very poorly reenact a scene from a play, an obscure play, no less, that no longer is in production? Well, the first reason is I thought it nicely kind of connects this week with last week. If you remember last week, Jeremy ended um, with this admonition, this encouragement from Psalm 131, where the psalmist says, look, God, I don't want to be more important than I am. I don't want to be big-headed. I don't want to be too self-involved. I want to just rest in your arms like a content child. I don't want to rule the roost. I don't want to be too big for my britches. I don't want to be puffed up with self-conceit. That was last week, and transitioning into this week with the parable that uh, Laura just read for us, I also think this scene from the cocktail party perfectly illustrates much of what I think we'll see this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Self-importance, self-righteousness, self-involvement, self-justification, and all the ways we use language games to avoid addressing that very real issue that many of us face. So while this is not at all important necessarily for you, I don't think my slides are working, Amber. You may have to run it after all. Um, when I'm doing it, it's not, it's not advancing them. But um, in a very real way, this scene from this play enacts what I'm calling today's message, speech, stories, and scripts. God, talk, and the Good Samaritan. It's kind of a mouthful, I know, but those are, that's basically the outline for the sermon this morning. Speech, stories, and script. God, talk, and the Good Samaritan. And we'll get into this just a little bit more later on, but I submit to you this morning that essentially in Luke 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus quite literally attempts to flip the script on his hearers and provides them with an alternate story, refusing to play the game of manipulative or controlling speech or what we're going to call God talk that avoids the real issues, that avoids the heart issues, keeping both God and neighbor at a distance. And so while there's many ways we could read the parable of the Good Samaritan, primarily most of you have probably heard it with an ethical dimension to it, there's nothing wrong with that. But given where we're at this summer in this series that we're calling Speaking of Jesus, and we're wondering about the ways in which we participate and share in language and the words we use and what it means to speak of Jesus, given that context this morning, we're going to settle down on what, is, what does that have to do with the Good Samaritan? How does that inform how we read and what we learn from the parable of the Good Samaritan? So, speech stories, and scripts. And I'll kind of tease that out a little bit as we go. So heading number one, you can kind of bracket it off. We're going to call it heading one, speech or God talk. So let's begin. Let's go back to the scriptures beginning in verse 25. You're welcome to turn there or turn on. It's going to be Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So right off, let's just consider a few things. First off, we should notice that, I'm sure you know this, but a lawyer obviously is not 
what we think of in contemporary terms. It's, it is an interpreter of the law. This man is someone who is well-versed in the law, an expert in the law, in fact. just happens to be the Jewish law, the rabbinical law. So here's this man who is an expert in the law who comes up to Jesus and asks him a test question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the question itself is already kind of loaded if you think about it. I mean, what do you mean, what do you do to inherit eternal life? The very concept of inheritance, the very institution of inheritance means you don't do anything. You are simply born into it. You are an heir. This harkens back to something we saw last week when Jesus, as the disciples return from being sent out and they come back and they say, look at all the great stuff we did. Look at all that I did. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 don't rejoice in all that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in your family identity, in your inheritance as heirs. But there's something else that we can learn uh, from these questions that he poses um, to Jesus. Because Jesus' response is interesting. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So while it may be an expert in the law, I want to suggest that whether you're an expert in the law, whether you're a professional religious person or not, surely you've, you've felt or intuited this question in your own walk of faith from time to time. Maybe you've been reading the scriptures. Maybe you've been faced with some decision. Maybe you've been in a conversation with a friend or a mentor or at a gospel community. And this question, Jesus asked this question of all of us. Look, you've read it. For the most part, everyone in this room, I'm assuming, knows the gist of what this says. And Jesus asks all of us, so how do you read it? What do you think it says? I know we like to overcomplicate it, myself probably principal offender in this way, but often Jesus just simply says, what do you think it says? And I submit to you that perhaps you know more than you're letting on in how to read and how to follow and obey what Jesus asks of us. But let's keep reading, verse 27. See where the conversation goes. And he, that is the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And he, desiring to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? So this first thing to point out is the lawyer's answer to Jesus' question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He actually is quoting Jesus in that response. So while in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, these commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and strength, are in them separately, and love your neighbor as, your health, as yourself, they're not actually brought together until Jesus comes along. So, in a way, the lawyer is just answering Jesus with Jesus' own words. And if we take that response and we couple that with the kind of smart aleck, you know, kind of sarcastic question that he asked, well, tell me, just who is my neighbor? We learn a few things about what's going on with this lawyer. Again, I, I don't mean to suggest that he's necessarily malicious, or that there's like a bunch of, you know, um, uh, uh, sinister intent necessarily. 
He may just not be self-aware. How many of us have similar experiences? We're just not really aware of what is going on in us, and so we ask questions to avoid the real issues. It's not entirely an honest conversation. So just the way that Edward, in that scene that I shared with you at the beginning, comes in kind of thinking he has everything figured out and thinks he's going to manipulate and control and maneuver this conversation so that it can go precisely where he would like for it to go. In a similar way, the lawyer's doing the same thing. He's asking questions of Jesus, but he already kind of knows the answers, and in many ways, he just tells Jesus what he thinks Jesus wants to hear. Eugene Peterson calls this God talk. I think we have a slide for this. He says, God talk is used to organize people into causes that no longer involve us, to carry out commands that no longer command us. That is, when the words of Jesus become the stuff of arguments, verbal tools for manipulation, attempts at control. So I'm wondering if this isn't something we all engage in from time to time, whether it's in our personal dealings with Jesus in our prayer life, maybe it's around a table with the scriptures open with our gospel community. Maybe it's at coffee with a, with a close friend. But we just dance around the real things that are going on in us and around us, the real problems that we face, the real people that are right in front of us. And we just have religious verbiage that we kind of you know, retool and reposition. Because the real issue, and Luke lets us in on it, is, is right there in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. See, the lawyer was still working with an assumption that he needed to justify himself. These are the real stakes of the conversation. As Peterson says, self-justification is a verbal device for restoring the appearance of rightness without doing anything about the substance. So Jesus in a way, catches this lawyer and that very fault. How many of us would prefer to appear right than actually be right? How many of us would like to have the right answers to the right questions, but not actually do anything with the knowledge that we have? And so here at about the halfway point, I just want to take a few moments and pause. And I've done this before, um, but uh, I'm just going to pose a few questions to you and give you about 30 seconds between each question to allow you some time to just reflect there quietly in prayer with the things that I see as kind of coming up to the surface in these scripture verses. So, do you often desire to justify yourself? How does this come up in your everyday language? the conversations you have. Just think back on this last week, the conversations you have, the the religious or spiritual conversations you had. Did you engage in God talk? Question number two. Do you avoid having to talk about the real heart issues by manipulating and maneuvering conversations? And how does this keep you from personal relationships with God and with neighbor?
Question number three. How often do you talk about loving God? I'm sorry, how often do you talk about loving God and about loving your neighbor to avoid actually doing it? So heading number two now, it's going to be stories and scripts. So we can just bracket it off again. Stories and scripts. We'll get to that in just a minute, Amber. Sorry. Um, we'll just pick it back up in verse 30. Actually, we'll go back one, verse 29, just for context. The lawyer says, desiring to justify himself, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied with the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whenever more you spend, I will repay when, you come back, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So as I mentioned earlier, at this point, we could probably spend the next 20 minutes talking about all the ethical implications of this parable, all the ethical dimensions. On the one hand, suppose we could talk about the negative lesson of this parable, right? Do not be like the priest or the Levite. We could talk about how each one of us should make sure that we build enough margin into our lives, that we're never too busy, that we're never too in a hurry to have time to stop and help someone who's in need of help. We could even probably go so far as to maybe make excuses for the Levite and the priest. You may have heard someone um, teach it in this way where, the, you know, well, let's not be too hard on the priest or the Levite. I mean, after all, they were obligated by Jewish law to maintain their ceremonial purity. And for all they knew, this naked and beaten man on the side of the road was dead. And so, of course, they didn't want to touch him. Of course, they didn't want to help him because that risks the chance of becoming ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't be able to carry out their duties in the temple. It was their job to serve the Jewish community by carrying out sacrifices in the temple. So, of course, you know, we shouldn't be too hard on them. But in a way, this just kind of gets back to the original exchange that Jesus had with the lawyer. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's still kind of falling into the same trap, this trap of obedience as a means to justify one's self. Or we could perhaps um, talk about the positive lesson of um, this parable. Be like the Good Samaritan. Be like the Samaritan. Make sure you help people. Help strangers. Always be ready to help and to lend aid. And of course, that is all true. Um, I don't think anyone would, and I'm certainly not suggesting that you shouldn't be helpful and you shouldn't be willing to serve and willing to help. But, th but here's the thing, and even the scripture lets us in on this. 
You already know that. The lawyer already knows that. In the very first couple of uh, questions, he already knows. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. He knows that. At the end of the parable, in verse 36 and 37, Jesus asks, which one of these proved to be a neighbor? He says, the one who showed him mercy. So it's not as if this religious expert, it's not as if this lawyer was confused about what it means to love his neighbor. So then why, as a response to the question, who is my neighbor, would Jesus' uh, answer ultimately be, love your neighbor? That doesn't, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So, what are we to do with this? What is it that Jesus really wants this man to understand? What is it that Jesus really wants this lawyer to understand? What is it that Jesus wants us to see in this story? What is here for us? Well, I submit to you that perhaps what's going on in this story, and I alluded to this earlier, is that Jesus is offering an alternate story to the lawyer in order to invert and subvert and correct the scripts that this lawyer is running off of. And so, what does that mean? I've used this word scripts a couple times. I guess I should probably define it at this point, but scripts is actually a psychology term. It's a psychological theory, and I think we have a definition for this. Um, yeah. So scripts in psychology are patterns of behavior that provide programs for action. That's a really minimal way of talking about it. But let's, let's just tease that out a little bit. It's like kind of how we interpret our experiences and then use those interpretations to then kind of like predict and expect what might happen in future experiences that look similar. That makes sense? So like, for example, a famous one that a lot of people will use when they talk about scripts is the restaurant script. So any one of you who have ever been into a restaurant, you know the restaurant script. You know that when you get into a restaurant, the first thing you do is sit down and then you order drinks and then they bring the drinks, and then you order food, and then they bring the food. And like you know what's supposed to happen. There's a sequence that you kind of intuit. Not explicitly, but you kind of know what to do. So imagine if you'd never been to a restaurant in your entire life. Let's say you were like a, a, a tribal villager from some other country, and you come to America for the first time, and you go to a restaurant with one of your friends, and you have no idea what you're supposed to do. That's a script. You're acting out, you're carrying out a script. But it's not always kind of so benign, right? A lot of times, it's quite, quite more serious. We come to expect certain things. It informs our prejudices. It informs our biases. It informs how we see other people. We make prejudgments because we expect them to act certain ways. We expect certain things to happen in certain ways. And so, in the context of the series that we find ourselves in, this speaking of Jesus, there's a way we can read the Good Samaritan which is precisely about the ways that Jesus is inverting and subverting the scripts that you and I are running off of. So, scripts can also often be wrong. So what are the wrong scripts that perhaps the, the, the parable is meant to address in the lawyer? And see if you can relate to any of these. Script number one that um, perhaps Jesus is addressing in the lawyer's own heart. Script number one, knowledge about God leads to loving God and loving neighbors. That is, being right, having the right answers is the same thing as loving God and loving neighbor. 
Surely none of us ever fall into this trap where we just think as long as we get the right interpretations of Scripture, the right theology, well, then that is the same thing as loving well, following Jesus, being someone after God's own heart. And that's why Jesus tells this story where precisely the people that are supposed to have all of the correct theology and all of the correct knowledge about God, the priest, the Levite, the people that are paid to know the right things about God, fail the test that Jesus puts before them. And in a way, they literally just step around the real issue, the real problem, the real person right in front of them. They use their right theology, their supposed or um, hoped obedience to the ceremonial law to avoid dealing with what's actually in front of them. Script number two. The lawyer may have been operating off of a script that told him that Samaritans are bad people. They are the worst people. We've talked about this the last two weeks, in fact, as, Jesus, or as um, Jeremy introduced the series for us. There was a dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans, and from the Jewish perspective, the Samaritans were the worst of the worst, the wretched of the earth. And so the idea that a Samaritan would actually somehow fulfill God's law, would somehow do good, was a script that influenced the lawyer where he would have been radically, um, this would have been totally unexpected for him. And I know it doesn't land with a whole lot of weight for us because we're not first century you know, Near Eastern people. So we kind of need to update it a little bit, perhaps. And without going into too detail and without being too specific, just reinter- or reimagine the parable in contemporary terms. Who would be the Samaritan as far as you're concerned? Who's the Samaritan for you? Who's the worst of the worst? Again, I, I went back and forth thinking about being really explicit with this um, illustration, but I decided so that I don't uh, upset everyone in the room. We won't be too explicit, but I think each of you know who that, who that category of person is for you. It's, it's hard to admit it. It's not good that we have that kind of way of thinking. But each of us looks out into the world and sees a Samaritan, someone we think is so lost, so broken, so far removed from the will and the love of God that we can't even imagine that they could possibly do good. And so Jesus tells a story to disrupt that, to frustrate that. And script number three, which is the heart of the matter as far as I can tell, The lawyer's operating on a script that says he needs to justify himself. That it's up to him. And I I think each one of us, you know, goes back and forth between this story, the story that says I need to justify myself, I, it's up to me, and we go back to the story, or we can choose the story, and the story that Jesus offers, which is the good news, the story that Jesus has done it, that Jesus has justified. So Jesus tells this story to invert and subvert these scripts, these these assumptions that we run off of. So we're kind of winding down now, but I also want to give you another moment. I have three more questions for us to consider together before we close. 
What kinds of stories are you regularly exposed to, caught up in, involved with? What are the political or social or cultural or religious stories that you inhabit? I already asked this, but give it a few more moments. Who is a Samaritan for you? Not who is the person that stops to show compassion and helps you whenever you can't help yourself, but what script keeps you from seeing people as those deserving help and those capable of giving help? Question number three. In the life of faith, what scripts fill in the gaps for you? When you're not sure, when you find yourself in a situation where you're not sure what to expect or where to go or how to act or how to behave, what script fills the gaps for you? Self-justification or the story that Jesus offers, the gospel story? So we kind of end where we began in a lot of ways. With the initial exchange between the lawyer and Jesus, where the question was, what shall we do to inherit life? And the answer, the right answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Love. We end kind of where we began. Love. Jesus' admonition, his, his instruction to the lawyer in verse 37 and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The invitation is to love, to show mercy, to show compassion. In other words, the invitation is to stop all the God talk and actually get in and get on with the business of loving, of caring, of showing compassion. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan exposes the scripts and the stories that we inhabit, those very same scripts that keep us from loving the real people right in front of us, that keep us from addressing the real heart issues that we face, that our friends face. Because the real question is not who is my neighbor, but it is will you be a neighbor? And in so doing, when you find yourself being and becoming a neighbor, you'll find yourself in front of real people with real problems, hearing and seeing them as they are and in a position to allow God to come in the middle of it. God with us. I think that's Jesus' encouragement for us. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another morning to be together in your presence. Lord, of everything I've said this morning, I'm, I, would, I am chief offender of God talk. 
of dancing around the real issues. Lord, I pray over my brothers and sisters here this morning that each one of us would stop using language to hide, would stop using conversations and religious talk to avoid actually dealing with you on a personal level that we would avoid and you would come and heal the ways in which we prefer religious contrivances over loving real people and real ways. So Lord, heal us of our mistakes. Heal us of where we've got off. Show us a better story. Show us the story. Lord, we love you. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name.